0: Howdy, you're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk.
1: But our scripture reading tonight is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me all that i ever did can this be christ they went out from the town and were coming to him let us pray heavenly father we thank you for your graciousness to us and how your holy spirit is working in the lives of these students we thank you in particular for ruf and how are you using it to grow and sanctify your people here at Texas a and We also thank you for Austin McCann and his family and for their work among us. And we pray that you would bless them richly. Um, bless Austin and his preaching of the word. In your gracious and holy name we pray. Amen.
0: All right. Thanks, Cole. That was a long passage, so uh, thank you so much, Paul, for reading that so clearly. Um, Worse tonight. Uh, look, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Austin McCann. I'm the, I'm the campus minister here. I do want to draw attention to our two interns, George Devaney and Emma Pearson. We all just stand up real quick, okay? That's George and Emma. They're awesome. Uh, look, look, if you if you ever just want to meet with someone, okay, talk about the Bible. If you have questions. Like, they want to meet with you. Okay, that's their job. It's awesome. Uh, so please go reach out to them. They want to get to know you. They want to spend time with you. I do as well. So please come talk to me if you ever want to meet. Grab coffee on camp- campus. Take you to your favorite restaurant. I want to do that. Okay. Um, so, really, like, welcome, Maria. We're so glad you're here. Um, if you've been with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We've I been mean, looking at our theme that Jesus is the bringer of life. And, um,. And to kick off this evening, I want to start out with a story. Uh, Back in the early 2000s, a professor and his wife adopted their son from Russia. On the the first of two trips uh, required for their adoption, the orphanage staff had to lead them down the hallway and walk them through the tour of the orphanage. And as they were taking this on this tour, they were going to meet and greet a one-year-old boy that they had hoped would one day become their son. As they walked out this hallway and through this orphanage, what they noticed quickly was that it was really smelly, that it was run down, that the living conditions were, like, barely tolerable. But that actually wasn't the worst of it. The horror was actually at how quiet the orphanage was. The husband described that this place full of children was more silent than a funeral home. At one point, he stopped his wife and he asked her, he said, why is it so quiet here? Like, this place is filled with babies. Well, what they later learned was that these children weren't crying because infants actually eventually learned to stop crying if no one responds to their calls for food, for comfort, or for love. And no one ever responded to these children, so they stopped crying altogether. And the silence continued as they entered into the boys' room. His name was little Maxim, right, but would later become their son Benjamin. And he stood straight at attention, but didn't make a sound. And really, this this professor and his wife, they they read to him. They sang to him. Like, they gave him hugs. Um, They told him how much they were looking forward to being his parents. But there were no cries, no squeals, and no groans. And every day they left at the appointed time in the same way that they had entered, in silence. Well, on the last day of the trip, they had to tell their soon-to-be son goodbye because by law they had to return to the United States and complete all the paperwork before they could return back to Russia to pick him up. And in this last meeting, after hugging and kissing him and telling him goodbye, they walked out, they walked out into the quiet hallways, the wife was shook with tears. And that's when they finally heard it. They heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a wailing cry. And it seemed he knew that for the first time that he would actually be heard. And on some level, he knew that he had someone who cared about him. So he let out a cry. And look, that story is both heartbreaking and hopeful, right? Heartbreaking because the, right, the broken, hopeless condition of an orphan, an orphanage is really hard to imagine. And it's hopeful because someone stepped in with love to intervene. Well, we're about to see tonight an interaction with Jesus that is both heartbreaking and hopeful. It's heartbreaking because this woman is bruised and broken. That she's orphaned by by what she has done and by what has been done to her. And this evening, the Samaritan woman will actually reveal what is in all of us. That she's a sinner and a sufferer. But it's hopeful, right? Because Jesus, you see what God is like. That this is the heart of God on full display. A love so deep, so rich, so unwavering that it goes to this woman. It goes straight to the middle of her heartbreak and her shame and brings hope by saying to her, you and you and me tonight, in all of your shame, that you belong to me, that you're mine. And so there's two things I want us to look at tonight. If you're a note taker, here you go. Um, Two things I want to look at tonight between this uh, interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. First, noticing that Jesus meets us in our thirst and in our shame. And secondly, Jesus Jesus satisfies our thirst and frees us from our shame. Okay, so Jesus meets us in our thirst and in our shame, and he satisfies our thirst and frees us from our shame. Um, Okay, there are a few things, a few details in verses 1 through 4 that John gives us that are really important to understand about what is going on in this interaction. Okay, And first, right, it says Jesus is on his way to Galilee, but he had to pass through an area called Samaria. In Samaria, if you were a religious Jew, it was the badlands, okay? Many would go around Samaria and actually make the journey a lot longer rather than passing through it because the Jewish people considered Samaritans half-breeds and heretics. Why? Well, because Samaritans had intermarried with Israel's oppressors. It goes all the way back into Israel's history. And they had only considered the first five books the Old Testament as God's word. Hence why this Samaritan woman in verse 9 is shocked that Jesus, a Jewish man, is even talking to her. And secondly, Jesus approaches a well. Yes, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. Okay, so he's tired, and he's, thirst, he's thirsty, and he sits down at this well. And John tells us it's about, it's about the sixth hour, which is high noon. Right, which, I don't know, sometimes is the first hour for some of you, depending on how late it has been. Um, right, but it's the hottest time of the day, and this woman is alone. And this tells you a lot, because what we know is that most communities during this time period, they, they very rarely would come draw water out of a well in the middle of the day. Right, that's kind of common sense. Because, like, like I, they either did it early in the morning or later in the evening. When it was cooler, it wasn't so hot. So, re, like, you probably enjoy walking around across campus right now versus you do, like, at 1 o'clock today. It's really hot. <laughs> um, but what this tells us is that this woman, it, she doesn't have a community. She's isolated, and she's most likely an outcast if she's coming alone at this time. And lastly, later we learn that this woman has had five failed marriages and is now living with someone who is not her husband. Why is this all important? Well, this is a picture you get quickly from John, that this woman inhabits almost every single cultural and moral barrier to a Jewish man, and what, what most people during that time thought were barriers to God himself. And I address this because it's supposed to draw us back to chapter 3 and compare Jesus' interaction from last week with Nicodemus. If you were with us last week, we, we looked at a man named Nicodemus who had all the outside credentials and no barriers to Jesus. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman couldn't be more different. Nicodemus was a Jewish man, okay? He had no racial barrier. He was a man, he had no gender barrier. He was a Pharisee and a teacher, he had no moral barrier. He he has all the right credentials to be interacting with Jesus. Yet, as we looked at last week, Jesus ends up rebuking Nicodemus and challenging him on what it means to be truly saved. An interaction that at first we all expect to go well, but goes poorly. And now here in chapter 4, we have this woman woman who is a foil to Nicodemus. And she's considered a half-breed. There's a racial-cultural barrier to Jesus. She's from Samaria. There's a political barrier to Jesus. She's a woman, there's a gender barrier to Jesus, and she's lived an immoral lifestyle, she's a moral, there's a moral barrier to Jesus. And so you're supposed to be thinking, when you, when you read the beginning of this passage, like, ooh, this interaction is about to go really worthy. But does it? You see, Jesus deals with the Mr. Religious, well put together Nicodemus, very differently than he deals with this Samaritan woman. Than this Samaritan woman. In other words, Jesus knows his audience. He knows what each individual heart needs at its appropriate time, and in our lives as well. Sometimes that's conviction. Sometimes that's comfort, or truth, or grace. And be a Christian long enough, you will experience all of the above at different points in your life, or at the same time. You see, this is the point. Placing the story of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman side by side is no accident by John. Because at RUF, you will hear this phrase. I think Jack may have mentioned this. That you are never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace. That's Nicodemus. But you're never so bad that you stand outside the reach of God's grace. This is the Samaritan woman. Both are in need of God's grace, no matter how good or how bad they think they are. But here we have this woman who makes a walk of isolation, okay? She's an outcast, and here's her walk of shame. And there's Jesus, God himself in the flesh, waiting to meet her. And right, you read the beginning of this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Because Jesus asks for a drink of water. All right, she's surprised by the request, and I'm sure on edge, like they're the only two at this well. And she, has, she says like, hey, you realize I'm a Samaritan, right? This isn't supposed to be happening. And then Jesus turns the conversation around and says, well, if you knew the gift of God, And who was talking to you? He would actually ask me for a drink. And I would give you living water. And then Jesus describes the water he will give her. As a kind that will well up to eternal life. So that she would never be thirsty again. And so the woman says well well, give me that water. That sounds great. And did you hear how odd Jesus' answer is? He says go tell your husband. Go call. And she sort of avoids being honest with a little bit of honesty. But then Jesus opens the floodgates by pointing out the wreckage in her life. He says, okay, let's talk about your five previous husbands and the one you're living with who is not your husband right now. Why would Jesus say, bring your husband after she she asked for living water that will always satisfy? Why start talking about the history of men and relationships in her life? Because Jesus is diagnosing her thirst. Not physically, but in regards to her longings, to her desires. Jesus is saying, you're thirsty. Just like you keep going back to this well to quench your physical thirst, you keep going to men to quench your longings and desires. And it's not working. And here's what Jesus is doing, and it's brilliant. He is exposing not only the Samaritan woman's heart, but how all of our hearts work. We are thirsty. And so we have have desires, God-given good desires. We have desires for intimacy and for safety and for protection and for beauty and for love. And all those desires are good, those longings of the heart. They're wonderful. That's how God made us and created us. But the problem is where we try to quench those thirsty desires. Those desires were made to be quenched and satisfied by God himself, by his divine love alone. But our sinful and, twi- and twisted hearts mean that we try to quench the desire- these desires anywhere but God, and so we have a constant thirst. Um, I love playing pickup basketball. Okay, I mean, I'm not that good at it, um, but I played all throughout high school. Like I love like going outside playing with my friends. And uh, one afternoon, my friend David came over, and we played like all afternoon, and it was awesome. Uh, it was super hot that day. I remember, and it, like. It was it was dusk and like or the sun was setting and like it got to the point where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face and um and yeah so like we were exhausted we were tired and we were really thirsty and so we went inside to the kitchen and I remember I was so I was just too lazy and I was too tired to turn on the lights so I reached to the cabinet and grabbed the plastic uh, Gatorade bottle and David filled up uh, two cups with ice and I poured the, the Gatorade into the cups. And we were wiped, and we sat on the couch, and we're like, poof, and we're like, all right, bottoms up. But after which, we erupted with a simultaneous like spewing out of our mouths because the plastic bottle that I grabbed wasn't Gatorade, it was cooking oil, and like, it was it was awful. You know, like, I, I do don't drink cooking oil. Um, yeah, like it was gross. And but what we thought we were getting. What we thought we were getting would quench our thirst. But instead we were just left with a nasty taste and really unsatisfied. (laughs) It was gross. And like, dare to see this about yourself. Like, your thirst for beauty is good. It's a part of how God designed you. You actually were made for glory. You were made to find your beauty in the eyes of Jesus. That He treasures you. But when we try to satisfy the craving for beauty every morning when we look in the mirror, or in some person noticing you, it always leaves you thirsty. It's never enough. Like, your thirst for being productive, it's great. This is a driven, productive campus. Like, that's a good thing. You were made to hear, and one day you will if you're in Christ, well done, good and faithful servant from God himself. You were made to inherit the whole earth. But the problem is you try and quench that craving through being involved in every organization you can, making good enough grades, climbing the ladder, perfecting this area of my life. And it will never stop, never satisfy Your problem isn't your perfectionism or your busyness. The problem is that you think it's your solution, and it's not working. Consider the connection between misplaced desires, our thirst, and our shame. Right When we try to quench our thirst in places that we're never meant to satisfy, what's the result? It always leads to shame it always leads to isolation. It always leads to hiding. Why is the Samaritan woman alone in the middle of the day? Why is she hiding? This goes back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Think about Adam and Eve's response after they sinned in Genesis 3. After misplacing their desire by sinning against God and eating the fruit, what happened? They both immediately saw that they were naked, and they hid themselves. Nakedness and shame, you will see, If you study the Bible, they are synonymous in the Bible. And the result is always an isolation and a hiding. You see, this is the connection that Jesus is trying to make for the Samaritan woman and for us. Is that our desire, her desire to be known in love, which is good and God-given, was never meant to be found in the intimacy of man. But can only be found in in infinite divine love that you and I were to be made for to be fully known and fully loved by Jesus himself. He's the living water, and nothing else will satisfy. And here's what's amazing. Because in verse 19, the woman concludes that Jesus' knowledge of her past came not from man, but from God. And she quickly changes the subject with a question on the proper place for worship between Jews and Samaritans. And so Jesus patiently entertains it, and he answers her question for her. All right, she may have been she may have had real interest in that question, right? but it's hard for us to blame her for changing the subject so quickly when, when someone just exposed your entire history of your life without even knowing it. Like, finally, after answering her question on worship, that God is spirit and is above and beyond any physical location or ritual, she tries to pull the ultimate conversation killer by saying, okay, okay, like that sounds great, you sound really smart, but I know when the Messiah shows up, like he can explain all of this to us. And Jesus simply but powerfully says, I who speak to you am he. And this leads to our second point, that Jesus satisfies our thirst and frees us from our shame. Did you see the almost comical turnaround in this this passage? Right, Right after Jesus reveals his identity to her, the woman who is alone in her shame who is hiding, who is rejected by all, who would rather be in a well at high noon than around people, after she meets Jesus, after she receives His care, after she believes Him, she goes back to the town, the town that she's been hiding from, and says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can Can this be the Christ? And I love the detail that John puts in here. He says that it, when that she is in such a rush, rush, such excitement at this news, that she leaves her water jar. She came for a physical well, but she left with, the, with an eternal one. Well. He's the one that used to hide in shame from all that she had done and all that had been done to her. Now is shouting, "Hey, like come see this man, Jesus! He told me everything I did." And what happened? The only explanation is that she is free from her shame by Jesus' love. His care has brought her out of hiding so that she now shares what she used to hide. How does that happen? Well, she must have found something in Jesus. She must have been convinced that, yes, Jesus, the Christ, was actually unashamed of her, that in Him, her shame was removed, and now she's free. I've, uh, I've used this illustration before. I actually used this illustration when I came to preach in the spring. Um, so, some of you have heard it before. Some of you have not. I don't know. Freshman probably heard this either. Um, but there was this famous story that's kind of run through the RUF world. Uh, and it's actually back in the 90s. Actually, Mississippi State, my old old palm on her. Um And there was a girl that was very involved with RUF, and her name was Abby. And she was dating this guy. And it was one of those relationships where everybody else thought it just wasn't a good relationship, right? Like, everyone wondered, like, like, why is she dating him? And she always told everybody, and her response was, y'all just don't know him like I do. Uh, that's always a bad sign, okay? Um, well, the beginning of her senior year rolls around, and she discovers uh, that she's actually pregnant from the guy that she's been dating and all of a sudden, uh, the blinders fall off, and she realizes, this guy doesn't care for me. He doesn't love me. Uh, he could care less about me. And so she breaks up with him. Well, what she didn't know is that most of her time in college, there's been a guy named Andrew in Arguella. And he's a great guy. And he's been one of her good friends. And he's actually always had a crush on her since freshman year. Well, when he hears about their breakup, Yes, I'm sure he, like, fakes being sad for her. And he waits the obligatory three weeks so he doesn't appear desperate. And he calls her up, and he says, Abby, like, I just need you to know, I've actually liked you for a while. And I would love to take you on a date. And Abby is actually really surprised, and she's thrilled, and she's ecstatic. Because she likes this guy a lot. She's like, this is a great guy. And she says, yes, Andrew, I'd love to go on a date with you. And they hang up. And then reality sets in. Right? She realizes that Andrew has no idea that she's pregnant. And so the shame wells up, and she debates with herself for a while, and she finally musters up the courage to call him back. And she calls him back, and he answers, and she says, Andrew, like, I'm really honored that you would call and ask me out, but I need you to know, I'm actually pregnant. And there's a long pause on the other end of the line. And Andrew says... Well, I love pregnant women. And, like, they actually ended up going out, and they're married to the city. Like, for real. True story. Um, like, Like, why is that beautiful? Like, why do you smile at that? It's because you tasted it, right? Like, Abby revealed what had been the most shameful moment in her life. And, like, instead of this guy retreating, like in her mind, knowing just knowing that it would lead to rejection, Andrew actually moved towards her and created a real love and joy in her and actually freed her from her shame. I'm telling you, that is a small taste of Jesus. Every day, every hour, Jesus knows all of my shame. He sees us behind our masks. And we can talk about it to him all day. And he says, I still love people who cut themselves. I still love people who struggle in their addictions. I still love people who are perfectionists. I still love people who've had abortions. Why? Because I've removed that sin and shame and guilt as far as the east is from the west. And see, here's what's amazing. Is that we know more than this Samaritan woman did. Because you know that the next time that John mentions the six hour, high noon, it will be in chapter 19 at the end of this gospel. It's when Jesus himself is high and lifted up on a cross. It's when he's naked for everyone to see, for everyone to laugh at, For everyone to jeer at and to mock at, and what's happening? He's taking the the Samaritan, the Samaritan's woman's shame. He's taking your shame. He's taking my shame, so that there's none left. And I don't know where you are tonight. Like you're probably exhausted. Half of you I've talked to are like, I can't even breathe because I have like three tests tomorrow or whatever. Which is amazing that you're here. Like, I don't know if you're cynical, full of shame, doubting, or smiling. But look, in John 4, Jesus clearly shows us the heart of God. He's a God who satisfies our thirst and frees us from our shame. Do you believe that there is a love like that for you? We have the privilege tonight to join the Samaritan moment in witnessing to the world what Jesus has done for us. That's an invitation. Let's pray. promise us again and again and again in your word that you are a God that is slow to anger that is quick to mercy and is abounding in steadfast love. but I pray tonight that someone would taste that and experience that and that we would go and share that gift with others, the free gift that you have offered us in satisfying our thirst and freeing us from our shame the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus, across from Sebisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig them.